South Coast Switch. You are either all the way in or you are all the way out. And there is no in Hey Hoops fans, Chris Dodson coming here with a special guest that I met out in Summer League with SBC program. Really been following his work for years, got to meet him. Coming on the podcast, doing me a great favor. We've got Howard Beck joining the program. Howard, how you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? Oh man, enjoying the uh, the the cooling down of the weather with a little bit of rain here in New Orleans. I understand you're in New York. It looks pretty sunny there uh, behind you. Uh, so <laughs> nice. the last days of summer before the league really jumps off, and we we have no off days. Uh, yeah, that is coming soon. I realized a long time ago, uh, this is, uh, I'll be heading to my 27th season somehow covering this league. I realized a long time ago that September is the shortest month of the year. And I don't mean because there's like only 30 days in September and never mind February. September is the shortest month of the year, year in, year out. If you cover the NBA, September is it's, it's, it's like two and a half days. Actually, it's not even 30. It's like two and because you think of the summer in these like increments right july august september is more or less the off season you know july's got summer league and free agency and stuff but you you think of the summer as the off season and you think of it as the time that you get to like exhale and relax a little bit and think a little bit about next season and you know obviously track some stuff like the lingering james harden and dame lillard sagas and whatever but in general we're programmed from the time time that we're that we're children to think of like an academic year and then the summer is when we relax right and in the nba kind of the same thing Except that somehow September does not feel as long as August or July. September is two and a half days. It's five minutes long. You blink. And it starts from the holiday. Yeah. But it's, it is over so fast. Like you think, oh, I've still got a few weeks to like prepare myself or get some off season. You know, I always think like, oh, this will be the off season where I like do all the like spring cleaning of the closets and stuff or like all these little things around. And no, no, you get to September, you blink. It's gone. Training camps are open and off we go. So uh, I'm bracing for it. Right. Hey, I said the holiday. It's also my birthday starts September. So that's always a tough one. We got all the nieces getting into school, like you mentioned. And then the last Monday of September has usually been media day the last few years, or at least since I come into the NBA. So that's right there. It's only a few weeks away. And I'm excited for it, even though it is, you know, a very hectic time. But you mentioned you getting into the league and all that. Let's start with what I've been doing with the South Coast Swish podcast, your origin story, the first time you fell in love with the hoops or writing. I don't know which come first. Were you, were you a kid with a ball in your hands? Were you just amazed by some Hall of Famer that made an impression? How'd you, you know, fall in love with the game and how you got to where you are today? There's probably multiple answers to this. I won't bore your listeners with, with uh, every detail of all of them, but it's not a oh, hey, fell in love with basketball, decided I needed to be involved in some way, and so, hey, can't play, so I'll go cover it. It's not one of those. And I know a lot of people, especially a lot of my younger colleagues these days, um, they had a real passion for the NBA specifically, and they followed that passion into writing about the league. When I came up in a purely newspaper environment, pre-blogs, pre-everything else, pre-internet, you didn't choose what you were going to do necessarily, right? You might have thought, oh, I want to cover this sport or that, but it's opportunity. You, you, you go where the opportunity is. And so in a lot of you know, cases, um, the sport or the beat picks you, not the other way around, because you, you don't have that option, especially in a purely newspaper environment. If you get to a newspaper that's of, of, in, a, in a big enough city that has an NBA team and that's what you wanted to do, all right, good luck, because somebody's been probably covering the team for five, 10 years and might cover it for another 10 or 15 or 20. And 
if you want to work for a living full time at a newspaper covering sports, you take what you can get. So it might be preps and then you might graduate to like a college beat or might be hockey, might be baseball. You don't get to choose. Um, So there's that. The other piece of this, though, is that the NBA was not my favorite sport growing up. I grew up in the Bay Area, in, uh, primarily in, in San Jose, California, um, at a time in the 70s and 80s when the Warriors were just dreadful for the most part. They did win a championship in the 70s. I was really small. I, don't, I have no recollection of, of them winning a championship. They were on, like, one of those distant sta- – like, your listeners, again, if, this, if the listeners skew too young, this will make no sense to them. But once upon a time, kids, um, TV, you didn't get it by cable or by satellite. You just had two dials, UHF and VHF, and you had an antenna. And you were lucky to pull in like a half dozen channels, maybe. Uh, the Warriors weren't even on like a primary channel in the Bay Area. I, I had to like flip her. I don't know how many different dials I had to adjust to, to even find the, the Warriors. Um, and they, they just weren't a major presence, right? Like the Raiders were huge in the 70s and part of the 80s before they left for L.A. The, the Niners were my team, right? The Niners are the team that my actual origin story is the catch, capital T, capital okay. C, right? Okay. Joe Montana to Dwight Clark, 1982 NFC Championship game um, is is kind of that 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 uh, key moment where I'm, I'm now hooked on the Niners. They win their first uh, Super Bowl that year. Uh, they go on to win many, many more. They're the team of the 80s. Um, but, you know, I was, you know, I, I followed the A's at, at times, I followed the Giants at times. The Sharks didn't exist yet. Um, but the the Warriors were behind all of them. The Warriors were way down the pecking order in the Bay Area. And, you know, the, the, the A's went to three straight World Series in the 80s. Um, you know, won the one against the Giants, the, the, the Bay Area, or the Bay Bridge Series, the, the Earthquake Series. Um, yeah, Earthquake. Yeah, so the Giants had their moments. The A's had their moments. Niners, Raiders. Even, even Cal and Stanford were ahead of the Warriors for most of my childhood and my upbringing. Um, so the Warriors were, just weren't that big of a presence. But... The Niners and the catch, Joe Montana, that whole era, Jerry Rice, Roger Craig, all these guys, that's what cinches my, my sports fandom. That's what gets me kind of just, you know, uh, consuming the entire sports section every morning. That was what got me reading the newspaper. And it was um, reading the sports section every morning, the sounds of Mercury News, that kind of really turned me on to sports writing in general. They're, they had a lot of great writers back then, and uh, just I, I love the way s- certain people wrote about sport whether it was it was football baseball or whatever and um as i'm moving from my early teens into my mid-teens into high school and you're thinking about like okay you got to start applying to college what are you going to do with the rest of your life you know um these big career questions and i thought well i I love sports i love uh reading about sports i'm good at writing my grades were decent in in all my english classes i thought well people get paid to do this they get paid to go sit there watch the game and then write about it that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I guess I could do that. Um, it was really as simplistic as that, like, you know, of, a, of, you know, whatever, thousands of potential career paths that we all have available. Um, it was just kind of this, this, this very simplistic teenage notion of, I like sports, people get paid to write about it. Um, all right, I'm going to do that. I, I didn't even, th- there's, a, who knows how many other ways in which I could have channeled um, either my interest in sports or my interest in writing. But anyway, uh, so I went to college, UC Davis, uh, up near Sacramento, and um, went to work for the school newspaper right off the bat, and I was off off to the races. That was it. Um, never stopped. Right. We have somewhat of an origin story. They're similar, you know, going to school, working for the papers. 
Uh, I've kind of veered off of it for a while, but I do consider myself more of a storyteller than a sports writer. I'd come from, you know, a weekly paper doing where well, you got to do politics. You got to do everything here. If you're doing a small parish, y'all have counties, you know, but it, it's, it's a little bit of a jack of all trades sort of thing. And just for one day a week, two days a week, trying to get out of it, trying to become a writer full time, because these players are, are players, you know, you're, once you're in the game, you see them more as humans. You get these fans that just are coming at them as betting commodities. We can touch on that in a minute. But you did mention how, you know, there's the guys that are on the job five, 10 years. They're going to be there five, 10, 20 more years. There's only so many jobs in this industry that are already existing. And someone's already filling that job. If you want in the industry, and I'll get your thoughts on the industry and giving back to the game through like the SBC program, these younger, younger guys you're talking about that fell in love with the NBA and then want to write about it. You kind of have to create your own value and find your own voice because the jobs that you want, the ones you've been reading about, those jobs are filled. And if they ever become vacant, they've got a long line of people to fill that beat writer position. So, uh, yeah, thoughts on all that? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I did, I did leave out, of course, a piece of this, which, you know, for any of your listeners who are curious about, okay, yeah, I understand, okay, you love the Niners. How do you end up covering the NBA for 26 years? Um, so for me, so it's, you know, there's, there's that whole, uh, you know, expression about, you know, uh, luck is when preparation meets opportunity, all that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, a lot about this industry is, you know, obviously you're kind of, first of all, getting reps, writing a lot, um, proving yourself working at it, all these other things. And of course, contacts, your, your, your network and the people that you, you meet along the way, people who you, um, you find as, as mentors or um, just contacts you make, all of that matters, right? The who you know is, is often as important as what you know. I started covering the Lakers in 1997. That's the start of this, this NBA saga for me. Um, it's a good time to start covering the Lakers. Yeah, uh, little did I know, right? I mean, they had, Shaq and Kobe had been there for one year together. Um, but Shaq had been nursing uh, an injured knee for much of that year. Kobe was a, a rookie, and he ends that season with the air balls against Utah. But I didn't, you know, no, other than Jerry West, I don't know that too many people foresaw exactly how great that era would end up being. And there were early signs that it might not ever really take, right? So anyway, but I got hired at the LA Daily News by, um, you know, the sports editor who I had worked for at a previous place. And when the, when the job had come open that year, um, at that time I'd been out of sports for five years. You mentioned covering politics. I was covering local government in a couple different places for about five years. I had left sports entirely. I didn't think I was necessarily gonna go back to writing about sports. I had kind of moved on and decided, you know, I wanna cover politics or I wanna cover just news news, right? Um, the real news, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and this this former boss of mine calls up and says, uh, we've, we've got an opening on our Laker beat. Our guy left. The guy who left, fun footnote, was Mark Stein, who had left oh. the LA Daily News that year for the Dallas Morning News to go cover the Mavericks. Um, and so this this former boss of mine calls, says, you know, look, I'm not going to hire you specifically myself because we know each other. I'm going to but if you're interested, I'll bring you in. I think you'd be great at this. I'll turn you over to the deputy sports editor and, you know, of course, the managing editor of the paper and the executive editor. All these other people would do the interview process and decide, you know, they, they would be the ones to vet me. Um, so I did. And, uh, you know, and, and that's really, of course, where this whole thing starts. But if I didn't have the passion for writing about sports and then got kind of just the journalism bug in general in, in college, I wouldn't have been there in the first place. I would have been in that position. 
It was right. that I, I, I was so, it, it, in, my, in my college uh, experience, the college paper, I got so into just um, all of it, way beyond sports, journalism in general, reporting in general. I had had none of that, exp I, I didn't even work at the high school paper. So I was coming into it very new. Um, and I just immersed myself. Um, you know, I, got a, I got a degree in English from UC Davis, but really I, 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 I say I majored in the Aggie. The Aggie was the student newspaper, the California Aggie that was, uh, the Aggies were, was the mascot. Um, and that's what I spent all my time doing and absolutely loved it. And I did both sports and news in college. And so that when I graduated, it was only natural. I ended up doing both as well. Um, and I think if there's any lesson in there, like I don't, I don't know that the path I took is one that anybody could try to to duplicate because it doesn't make a lot of sense. I have some weird left turns in there, um, but I do think there are some lessons in there. In that one, I I think it does help to be broad based. I do think even if your interest is solely in covering the NBA, solely in covering Major League Baseball, solely in covering whatever, the the skills you need in this industry go way beyond your knowledge or your perceived knowledge uh, and your insights into the game you're covering and the sport you're covering. It's, it, it's never just that. You need to have a certain amount of, of reporting skills and obviously writing skills. Um, it, it, you're you definitely have to adapt to like different lanes as a reporter or a storyteller, yes. depending on the, yeah. Yeah, if you're covering, you know, the Charlotte Hornets and Miles Bridges gets rung up for uh, domestic assault, you're, you're not a sports writer that day. You, I mean, you, you are technically still, but you're just a journalist who has to do what any other journalist does when somebody on their beat is now in trouble with law enforcement. You've got to be able to, to deal with those issues and tackle those issues intelligently and write about them and report on them. It's never just about the game. And, and the fact is, in 2023 and for much of the last 10 or so years, because of all of these new sites that have come into being and, and, you know, first the blogging era and now just all a lot of other sports sites that are purely about the sport. Yeah. You could probably just do this. There are a lot of people who write about the NBA who aren't necessarily quote unquote journalists. They're, they're basketball writers, they're sports writers. They are essayists. They're um, you know, they're the people who analyze, you know, the, the technicalities of the game, the X's and O's, the analytics, salary cap, all these different ways of covering the sport. But if you want to be an NBA beat writer, either covering a team full time, or a national writer who covers this league, I, I still believe strongly that you need to have some journalistic chops, some journalistic training. Um, whether I don't have a journalism degree myself. UC Davis doesn't have one. Um, I learned entirely from working at the student newspaper and then through various jobs after college. But whether you have a degree or whether you've just learned in a journalistic environment, having those skills I think is really important and that training is really important and I think that's what prepared me and that's what gave people at the LA Daily News the confidence to hire me to cover the Lakers in 97. I wasn't, quote unquote, just a sports writer. And I don't mean to demean sports writing as a term at all. I just mean that, as I said, you, it's never enough just to know and be able to write intelligently about the game or about the players. You, you have to have some grounding in uh, the rest of this. And so um, I think I still think that's really important, and I still think even even now at a time when newspapers are, in you know endangered to say the least, and and uh, you know uh, legacy media has has had a lot of difficulties in the internet era. The best training to me is still working for a newspaper where you learn to write concise and on deadline, and you have editors that you're accountable to. Uh, and, and you get a ton of reps because you just got to crank stuff out every day to keep that, keep the, uh, the pages filled. So uh, to me, 
even though the, the industry, the media landscape has changed dramatically over the last few decades that I've been in the business, um, there's still a path there that I think provides a lot of benefit. Right. If you started a newspaper, you're actually limited by the ink. It's not this bandwidth where you can go off on a message board and just rant and scroll. You actually have to get concise, like you said, tell the story, tell it succinctly, tell it in a way that's authentic and does service to what you're writing about. It, it, it's a good way of sharpening your knives and people, you know, starting at the lowest rung is it's just an inevitability. It's something you're going to have to do if you really want to fill your whole skill set. You know, if you start at the top, there's a lot you're going to miss just by lack of not being there, being available and being in that space. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly it. And look, I, I know a lot of people in this business now who came in through different routes, right? Where um, they were just blogging about their favorite team and they did it at a really high level. They're really smart about the game. And, you know, they, they're, they're in great jobs across the industry because they knew exactly what they wanted and they were hyper-focused on it and they were, and they were, they were good at it and they were devoted to it. And that's, and that's fine. Um, but to your point, Chris, just the, the idea of skipping steps, to me, the reporting really matters and the, the journalism aspect of this matters. And I can see sometimes who has the journalistic training or a journalistic mindset and who doesn't. In this you see thing. who gets in trouble when they step out there and they don't have it. Yeah. I mean, I, I just not to call anybody out, you know, no, no, I'm no, more of a positive I, podcast, but there are some people that just, they don't have it. They step out, they, they talk on a subject and you can yeah. tell that that was just never a concern. The ethics of journalistic integrity was not a concern. Yeah. There's, there's some of that. Some of it's, some of it's ethics. Some of it's just ability to report on something. Some of it is understanding um, that, you know, the idea of objectivity, and I know that that word, um, you know, people have, have different interpretations of it, and some people think it's irrelevant. It's not so much about being objective as it is being dispassionate. It's about uh, viewing things from a from a certain emotional distance and reporting on it as such. And I do think that um, the traditional journalism path still kind of provides some of that built-in distance or, or requires it. And I, th I think that that puts you in a better position to cover uh, – you know, especially controversial situations with teams and the league um, in a way that if you if you just came up as a fan who was writing about the game and you never really learned about kind of the um, the, the strictures and, uh, you know, guidelines of, of independent journalism, I think some of those some of the people who are writing about it from from this other lane, I think it limits them on some level. So, I, yes, I still think a, a journalistic background and some journalistic training is, uh, is 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 a is a provides you a, a a better more sound more complete training ground and um anyway that obviously that's my personal bias Kevin come up the way I did right hey, we're on the same page there and I've seen some of it recently we just had the up next elite camp here in New Orleans T Morant showed up you know not to step into all the John Morant drama but you've seen how people reported on that how it come out. Uh, how it's still going to unfold these first 25 games. There's going to be people talking about it, especially in the lead up to his eventual debut this season. Uh, just thoughts on that whole situation. Do you think, not to ask if there's an appeal there, but do you think there's uh, a better way that that could have been handled both by the league, the Morants, the fans, the media is, you know, especially with the, the gun culture we're dealing with today. There's so many other problems. I Not to get too deep with you, but that was something I thought, there, there was just a little bit of cringe in there for me. 
I mean, the whole thing is 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 troubling and sad, right? That John Morant would make the same mistake twice after having already served an eight game suspension. That he would be on camera waving a gun or what appeared to be a gun again. It it's just it's just really disappointing and it's and it's troubling and it makes you wonder, you know, obviously what, what's going on in his head? Why would he even risk this? Why why would he do this? Um, does he not understand the gravity of this? And yeah, there is a larger context. Uh, you know, our, the the gun culture in this country and gun violence in this country is 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 a serious problem. And agreed. Everything happens. Everything happens in a context of of, of of society at large, right? This is not just the NBA looking at one player doing one thing and deciding, oh, we, how do we handle this? This no, there's there is a context. Um, I I wasn't one who had any strong views, honestly, about what the quote unquote right discipline was. Twenty five was a about what I expected, to be honest. Um, I did. People were thinking, oh, it's going to be half the season. I thought that that was rather uh, that, that would have been rather extreme. And, and I don't I don't imagine the, the union or, or John Morant and his representation would have would have uh, accepted that they did accept the 25. They never appealed it. And they're not they're not appealing it. The, the 30, the 30, I think it was a 30 day window to appeal. It, it never happened. So he's going to serve the full 25 games. And I think that was the right call by by him. And, and um, I was going to say by the union, it's actually not like the union does it, but the union does it on the player's behalf. So it's the player's call. Um, it was the right decision by everybody not to challenge it. Uh, it's a bad look to, to try to knock that down, I think. Um, look, only John Morant knows, and maybe T. Morant, as you alluded to, he, who spoke recently to this camp of kids and, and, and basically said, you know, Jaws takes responsibility and it's, it's, all, it's all him. It's not his friends. It's not anybody else. It's him. Um, right message. Um, it was a very honest yet, I thought, an authentic polished yeah. statement i've seen these same statements from lee anderson from zion and the you know same gyms here in new orleans the way t moran approached it and the way he you know dealt with everybody afterwards from from what i'm hearing it, ariel myers put up the video she was on the podcast last week that got that from t moran it sounds like it's very you know authentic humble. it's coming from a humble place and that's something that's good to hear you know for the young man yeah i mean look i i always say you know these guys that come into the league really young they make mistakes that sh their mistakes are bigger because they're made in this under this searing spotlight, you know? Um, and so I always, I always try to pump the brakes on being too judgmental about these things or, and, and try to caution fans and, 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 and others not to, you know, not to draw too fast of a conclusion about a guy or his character. You're going to make mistakes when you're young. Some mistakes are bigger than others. Uh, but we got to give these guys room to to grow, evolve, and and learn because most of them are nineteen, twenty when they arrive. I mean, I, I was a complete knucklehead at nineteen, twenty, and I was a little less of a knucklehead at twenty two, and hopefully a little less at twenty five and less at thirty. But um, but and they're I starting was, families too at this young age. That's another yeah. thing that you know you've got to look at these players are making that transition as well. It, it's it's a lot for these guys. Yeah, and I just you know it's you know. Your screw-ups and mine don't have, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people seeing it, scrutinizing it, reading about it. So anyway, I always say we've got to give these guys a little bit of grace and, and room to grow. So only John Morant knows. Only John Morant and his, and his immediate circle know what's truly going on in, in his head and what this experience will have taught him and what he'll be when he comes back from that 25-game suspension. Um, 
I'm always going to take the optimist view on, on this and, and say, like, this is still a really talented young player who's got, you know, all the promise in the world and I think he's probably still going to have a fantastic career. And one day this will just be a footnote in his bio. Let's hope. Um, but in terms of the way the league handled it, I think the league did the best they could. In terms of the way the union handled it, I think it's regrettable that the union even issued the statement um, uh, objecting on, on principle to the length of the suspension. But, you know, that's what unions do. That's what they're there for. They're advocates for their members. It's fine. Um, this one's pretty serious. And so I think, yeah, maybe you should just leave well enough alone. But I get it. Like, that's, that's their job. They're doing their job. And if I were working, you know, in, in their position, maybe I would do the same. Um, and I don't know. I mean, in terms of fan response, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to gauge that, you know? Right. Uh, fans, fans will be fans. And to the, the, to the players union, the only way that becomes egg on their face is if there's another incident. And we hope that's not the case. Uh, that's the way I kind of saw that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, that, we've talked a lot about your origin story, some things off the court. Let's look at two things on the court. We'll let you get out of here. We're going on half an hour. I don't want to take up too much of your time. We, we've talked about the honest and genuine nature of some of these guys and their mistakes off the court on the court though. Do we have a little bit of disingenuous stuff going on with uh, James Harden, Dame trying to get to Miami? The the league has investigations into both, or they've issued statements on both. Is that something with the culture? Is that something with the CBA? Is that something that's just really just these two guys being these two guys? I don't, I you know, I don't know. I think Dame was a little bit more loyal. James Harden didn't quite have that same political capital built up. Yeah, I don't even like putting those two situations in the same sentence thematically, even though it's logical okay. to right? They are both superstars who are in their, you know, early thirties who both have trade demands on the table and both want to get to specific teams. Right. So in the abstract, they're similar, but they're completely different. And, and it's out of respect for Lillard primarily that I don't like grouping the two of them together because Damian Lillard, to your point, Chris, like spent his entire career with Portland. He was very patient been through a lot of ups and downs there a lot of change uh and they've just never been able to kind of put the team around him that can that help him get anywhere he's a guy who was on the 75th anniversary nba team who uh is one of the all-time greats uh that we've seen and he just he just hasn't had the support he's needed and the clock's ticking if there was ever a time to ask out it's natural that this is when he would ask out I'm not a big fan of guys trying to steer specifically to one team because, look, you sign a contract, the contract is the contract, and yes, it can be traded, and yes, the team can trade you at any time if you, if you don't have a no-trade clause. Um, but the fact is the this, this system only works if when a team decides to trade a guy, they have the ability to create a market or to see what the market is. Forget creating the market. Just have a market organically. A lot of teams in the league wouldn't be in the market for Lillard anyway, just based on their own timelines and his age, right? But everybody who could use a Damian Lillard and who has assets to trade for him should be in the mix. When a guy says only one team <clears throat> and puts out the word that if it's anybody else, I'm not going to be happy. Maybe I won't show up, which, by the way, you can't really do in this league. Um, but you, yeah, you that, can, that's ridiculous. But, but you're, you're just giving away salary. Chris, you know, Ben Simmons did it for a year. I don't know what the exact settlement was after that all, but like, Ben Simmons was the first in, in the time I've covered the league to have a contract and just decide I'm not showing up and I'll, and if it means sacrificing salary, I'm going to do it. I don't think he gave up way more than I think most other players would be willing to give up. Well, I think that's fair to say. The thing is, so a lot of what we're addressing now, when we talk about, you know, the Ben Simmons situation, Lillard, 
Harden, other forced trades that we've seen, and there's been just a flurry of them over the last five years, more in the last five years than probably in the previous 30. Um, it's the times we live in. Part of it is what we call, you know, colloquially player empowerment era. It's, it's more like superstar empowerment, and it's more like superstar mobility more than anything else. And some of that is their contracts are shorter than ever. That's by design. The league wanted shorter contracts in every CBA. They got them, and, well, this is part of the, the consequence is that uh, guys have more leverage. Also, the success of the league has created this, the pure success of the league. The league now generates over $10 billion, and the players, by virtue of the CBA, get half of that. So superstars, it, you know, once upon a time, we're making, you know, not even double-digit millions, right? Not even. <laughs> um, then it was double digits. Then it was twenty million. Then it was thirty. They're not, you know, guys like like Lillard, Bradley Beal. They're averaging forty, forty-five, fifty million a year. If you're making that much, then the quote-unquote sacrifice of of not showing up and forfeiting salary, or the quote-unquote sacrifice of turning down your bird rights and signing somewhere else, doesn't pinch quite as hard because you've already socked away a couple hundred million by that point of your career. So it's the fact that players are have a, a certain amount of leverage now, both um, just just not, not just their, the wealth they have, and they do have a, a great amount of wealth, but it's just the standing they have. Ever since LeBron left Cleveland in 2010, this is the era we're in. And so guys are flexing that leverage and, and their, their power to, to choose their destiny that much more. Again, I don't begrudge Dame wanting to finally leave Portland. Hey, guys, it's time. We, we had a good run. It's just not working out. The clock is ticking. I want to go somewhere where I can compete at a higher level before my career is over, and I don't think you guys can do it. Totally fair. He did just sign an extension, like, I don't know, what was it, a year or two ago, but whatever. Um, I get it. Harden, this is Harden's third trade demand in two years, and he keeps getting traded away from other superstars. And I, I understood, right, like, Houston things were getting a little bit, you know, shaky, but still, you were with – Westbrook. You were with Chris Paul before that. You were with Dwight Howard before. It's not like he was never given the support. He had teams. He had talent around him. And then in, in Brooklyn, my backyard, he's got Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. Now, again, I get it. Kyrie, Kyrie was doing Kyrie things, and Harden said, I don't need this nonsense in my life. I'm out. But this is a third trade demand in a very short span, and you're literally asking to be traded away from the reigning MVP. Yeah, it's Who's, a bad, bad episode of Love Island right now with James Harden. It, it, it's just preposterous. Like, I don't care what you think. Uh, you, you like, I know, I know. There's a, there's, a, there's all this, you know, speculation. Let's put it at, at that because we don't know for sure about the contract, right? When he took less a year ago to resign, uh, did he do it based on an understanding, a wink, wink deal, which would be illegal under NBA rules? But it, they happened. But uh, was there a wink, wink deal, and the, the Sixers reneged? Um, or is it simply that, uh, you know, his value didn't hold up and the team, whether it was the front office or ownership or whoever, decided not to? What, what it, maybe it was just – who knows what else? Whatever it was. Maybe he doesn't like playing with MB. It, it, whatever it is, though, it's on James Harden, whatever the reasons are. You, you, you're making – you know, you're still making $35 million this year by opting in. You didn't have to opt in. You could have gone to free agency – you didn't because you knew you wouldn't make that same $35 million. You knew there was no contract waiting for you, and now you're mad at the Sixers for not trading you. You could have, if you really wanted to leave, James Harden, you could have just gone to free agency, and he didn't. So I don't have any sympathy for him at this stage. Um, he's a great player. 
And he's a great player who's never won a championship and has only been to the finals once as a sixth man with the Thunder back in 2012. His clock is ticking too, and there's definite erosion in his game. Not massive, but it's there. He's no longer an MVP caliber player, but he's still a star. His best path to a title, if that's what he wants to complete his career, is to stay stay exactly where he is. Even the forced trade that he wants to the Clippers, okay, so you're going to go play with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, who, like, if they're healthy, I mean, that's the entire, like, that. that is their whole career. That is the entire Clippers era is a big fat asterisk of if healthy dot, dot, dot. That's the slogan for their entire era. So Harden wants to leave the reigning MVP to go play with a perpetually injured Kawhi Leonard and perpetually injured Paul George and also Russell Westbrook. Um, If you really want to win the title, stay in the East, stay with the Sixers. But, you know, he's got other things in mind, whatever that may be. Right, and you say if healthy with the Clippers, there's a lot of teams that can do that. If you had a crutch this way and you flip the graphic upside down, it looks like a trophy. You know what I'm saying? That's that's <laughs> that's just how it is. Uh, going on half hour, back last one. I'm right here. I follow Zion a lot. You can follow the timeline on Twitter, guys. Anybody following, doing it, Dodson Howard Beck's over there too. We'll get his socials in a second. Zion's been in the city. He's been working out. He's been on that new practice facility court. I've got to ask you. Even with all these people saying trade him, he's injured. I don't see an equal value trade if he's healthy or even 90% healthy. Zion and the New Orleans Pelicans and David Griffin in this front office, they've got multiple years to see this out because you can't cut bait next year, in my opinion. What have you seen and heard from Zion, the things going around the league? Do you have any insights on that you would want to throw out there? You know, nothing new or revelatory. I would just say that um, from the moment that this latest, you know, saga kicked off, you know, where he's hurt again and the Pelicans are are kind of faltering again. And then there's all this noise around a potential Zion trade. Is he on the market? Are they just gauging his value? Whatever in in June, May and June. My feeling all along was he's probably not getting traded, almost certainly not getting traded because the gap between his perceived value and his potential actual value, the risks baked into that entire equation are so huge that both the Pelicans and any potential trade partner are going to have just a hell of a time trying to even figure out how to value him. It's almost impossible, right? It's hard enough to make a deal in this league, period, especially when you're trading a superstar, right? There was nothing easy about, I'm sure, the trade negotiations around even a Donovan Mitchell or a Rudy Gobert or name anybody else who's been dealt over the last several years. It's hard, period. But at least you kind of knew, you had a good sense as both the team that had the player and the team acquiring the player, what that player's value was. Yeah, like CJ, you know, Pelicans, right there. Everybody knew what CJ was when he was trading. I have no idea how to value Zion Williamson in in a trade market. None. Because there's the version of Zion Williamson who is still really young, super talented, generational type talent who could be, you know, an an all NBA player for the next 10 to 12 years, not inconceivable at all, and could could lead a team on deep playoff runs year in, year out, be an MVP candidate, all of that. That is one still potential version of Zion Williamson. Then there's the version we've seen the last few years, which is, you know, plays half a season, gets hurt a lot. Um, question marks about not just his durability, but his commitment and his, his work ethic, his focus, 
never mind the weird off-court stuff this year. But if, if you bake in all that stuff, if you're the Pelicans, let's just say that, that, that as an organization said, you know what, we're just tired of being on this same cycle. We can't go into every single season thinking this will be the year, and then we go through the same song and dance. We, we, we need to do something different. We, we just need to pick a different path. We want some, something more reliable. Cool. Put them on the market tomorrow. But every team that's going to potentially trade for them is going to cite all the same concerns you have as the Pelicans and say, well, we don't want to give up that much because of X, Y, Z. So you're just not going to get fair market value for, for, for the potential great version of Zion. You are, you are trading him, you know, I don't want to say like at his low point, but just you're trading him at a time when his, the value is too clouded. You almost need to get through, if you really wanted to get out of the Zion business, if that were, was your goal and you thought, you know what, um, we've got other good young players, and if we could just you know, trade Zion for a boatload of stuff, we could, we, could, we could do this. We could be a contender another way. Even if you believe that, you've got to have like a full, functional, healthy season of Zion to get the market to the place where you can get the kind of return that you're supposed to get for a player of his caliber. It's just impossible right now. Right. Right. I equated it to uh, Tim, the Toolman Taylor, you know, when he was building that hot rod, it's going to look great. You hear here in the engine, you, but you got to bring it all together. And why would you sell it before you at least get it out the garage? You don't know the value. And if you take it down the street and it breaks down, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, a block down the street, we don't know what's going to happen a month into the season or January 2nd when he blows out his hamstring and all that in Philly. You just don't know. So some of it's unfortunate when he got undercut by Clarkson and the Jazz and landed on his tailbone. That just happened. Some of it's unfortunate. Some of it, we don't know if it's lack of conditioning, work, cardio, what he's doing off the court. But uh, Howard, appreciate you. It's been a good half hour. Tell people where they can find you. I'll come find you sometime during the season. I'm hoping to be back in the gym traveling around. But again, thanks so much. No, you got it. Uh, great seeing you again. Great chatting again. Uh, folks want to find me, they can find me on uh, Twitter. I will still call it Twitter. It will always be Twitter, uh, as, at least as long as it still exists. I'm there, at Howard Beck. Uh, just simply first and last name, no underscores, no other fancy stuff. Uh, I'm also on Blue Sky, for anybody who's found a, uh, an invite code to Blue Sky, at Howard Beck, and then it's the rest of their longer address there. Uh, I also have an authory page, which is author with a Y on the end, authory.com backslash Howard Beck. Everything I've written for uh, currently working for uh, doing stuff for GQ Sports, but everything for GQ, for Sports Illustrated, New York Times, everything I've ever done is, is uh, on my authory page. Again, that's uh, authory.com backslash Howard Beck, and um, hopefully figuring out some other stuff here soon about as, as to the rest of my repertoire for this coming season. But uh, been been, uh, been good catching up with you, Chris. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Howard, thanks so much again, fans, Hoop fans. Come back to us, South Coast Swish. I'm your host, Chris Dotson. Everything from Hot Atlanta to H-Town, Bill Street, down to Biscayne Bay. We're trying to cover it all in the South. So, South Coast Swish. You are either all the way in or you are all the way out. And there is no in between. It's like, this is how I got something to say. That's all I got to say.